Yeah. Hi, everybody. So I just want to give you the uh, order of the the order of the evening. Thank you all for coming. Obviously, uh, this is very exciting for us. We are overwhelmed by the turnout and by the enthusiasm, and, and we can't thank you enough. So we are going to start. We're going to do a podcast, including an ad read. I may, I may sing the, uh, the opening song, though that will be overdubbed. Hope for the best, expect the worst. Some bring champagne, some die of thirst. No way of knowing which way it's going. Wow. Hope for the best, expect the worst. Hope. I really will accompany this with music. It's <laughs> <laughs> impressive, though. Yeah, you guys are it's amazing. Yeah. Thank you very much. That is, of course, Mel Brooks from, uh, from the 12 Chairs. A, a little known fact that is a song written by Mel Brooks, though not performed by Mel Brooks, performed by a bunch of strange, semi-Soviet sounding cor choral men. So anyway, uh, so I will just say, welcome to the Commentary Magazine live daily podcast from Palm Beach, Florida. This is thrilling for us. It is absolutely thrilling to be here, to be here with members of the commentary family, the commentary community, the commentary listening community, the commentary reading community. And uh, we will endeavor to put on a good show that will also make for a good podcast. Uh, with me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Uh, associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, friend of the podcast, advertiser on the podcast, podcaster extraordinary himself, uh, economic sage, political guru, and the author of, uh, among other things, the revolutionary book, Startup Nation, co-author uh, with his brother-in-law, uh, Saul Singer, Dan Senor. Hey, John. So... Dan, it is bizarre that we should have arranged this months ago for you to be here because as we sit here, we got the news this morning that the government of Israel has kind of collapsed. You timed this perfectly. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, you're I like mean, a master yeah. producer. Yeah, I mean, I knew. Yeah. I knew months ago that the government of Israel would collapse on April 6th, and, right. and here we are. Indeed, if you don't know, um, this uh, very rickety, uh, multi, you know, uh, multi-legged uh, animal that should not be able to stand on its own legs. Uh, eight parties, I believe. Yeah. Leftists, um, right-wing nationalists, Islamists. Arabs, yeah. right. It's yeah. got everything. Right. Yeah. Um, so a member of the uh, party uh, that Prime Minister Bennett started, uh, Yamina, has left the party. Uh, and that single departure uh, means that the government or the, the there is no longer a majority uh, in the government. Uh, so 61 seats have now gone to 60. And uh, so Dan, as, as, as the person I turn to, uh, to tell me everything <laughs> that I need to understand about Israel, uh, first of all, this is not like a crisis that the country is going to go into 
when they got to be taking the chametz out of their house and buying the matzah for next week, right? Although I mean, the chametz thing was part of the, you know. The, oh yes, yeah, 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 yeah please, yeah. yes, yeah. We need to we need to go into that too. Yeah. So what you what so you want to just how? So, we, so I'm just saying, like, so it's not going to collapse tomorrow. Like, it's not like the government falls and that's 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 correct. The end of it. No, no, I actually don't think. I think it's going to muddle along for a while. Uh, I mean, this government was a to- was was preposterous when you think about it being set up. It would be the equivalent of like a U.S. government populated by, you know, Ted Cruz and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, like all serving in the same cabinet. I mean, really, so that it has survived nine months and twenty three days, which is what it was, is a miracle in and of itself. I actually think it's probably going to survive for about another eleven months, if not longer, because. So, so as John said, 61 seats existed. Parliament in Israel is 120 seats. So, and the prime minister of Israel has a, a party of six seats. So here you have a prime minister of a, of a government whose party in a 61-seat majority actually only has six seats of his own. So he was already a very weak government. And so now it's 60-60. And if, if one more seat goes the other way and calls for new elections, there will be new elections. And it would be the fifth Israeli election since April 2019, if that happens. Now, I don't think that will happen. I don't think they're going to get 61 seats to call for new elections, because even if there are more parliamentary members of Bennett's government who feel pressure to step down, I don't think 61 members of parliament want to vote for new elections, because the reality is many of the parties that are in the current government are polling very poorly right now. They would do worse in a new election they probably would not be able to maintain their same position and maintain their cabinet posts and all the rest. So for a variety of reasons, they're incentivized not to call for a new election. Uh, they are, there could be a vote of no confidence that would collapse the government, except there was a law passed in 2014 that if you want a vote of no confidence, you don't just have to have 61 votes for as a vote of no confidence to bring the government down. You also have to have 61 votes to present a new government at the same time. So you have to have 61 people before the vote of no confidence to agree on who's going to be prime minister, who's going to populate every cabinet ministry, what are the you know, structures and guidelines of that particular government going to be. I mean, it's the, the idea that the Israeli political class could organize that while they're organizing a vote of no confidence is highly unlikely. Perfect. Yeah. I don't know if you can hear this on the podcast, but it's... Yeah, it's, we're, we, there, there was just a... a Giant bolt of thunder. Yeah, right. Uh, I don't know if there is such a thing as a bolt of thunder. I'm yeah. sorry. And then the third scenario is they basically muddle along until the next time they have to vote on a budget. So they voted on a budget, uh, a two-year budget already. There's 11 months before they have to vote on the budget again. If the budget fails to be passed, and the government automatically falls. So you have, I think, they'll muddle along for the next 11 months. They may pass a budget at that point. I think it's unlikely. And then after they make it past that point, then you get to August of 23, when there's the automatic rotation between Bennett and the foreign minister of Israel, uh, Yair Lapid. Lapid becomes prime minister, and I think that has its own risk to, to collapse the government. So I think we're still a little under a year away from the government falling apart. But I do think between now and then, well, it's not a, a political crisis in that there's a government falling and there's new elections. I do think it, it was already a weak government, and it is now going to be a much weaker government. And given all the issues Israel is dealing with and all the risks that Israel is dealing with, that is a, a precarious situation. So let's try to unpack what's happened. Uh, you mentioned this was the fifth, that, that would be, this would be the, f- the fifth election. Uh, 
uh, there were three elections, 2019 onward, in which no government could be formed. And then this fourth election, finally this amazing concatenation of circumstances created this bizarre uh, government that, um, you know, under other circumstances, uh, is Israel at times of crisis has come together in, uh, you know, in, uh, in coalition governments to sort of, you know, speak with one voice, uh, you know, in the midst of a crisis and, 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 and represent the interests of, uh, of all of Israel, uh, you know, against, uh, against domestic or against foreign threats, let's say. Um, that is not the case here. So this is not, you know, this is, this is not a consensus government or a national unity government. It is a government of a rigged, bizarre, jury-rigged thing. And by the way, I, I had thought the government would not survive, but I always thought it was going to be a security crisis, meaning I thought it would be like yeah. if there were another Gaza war, because there's an Islamist party in the government, I thought that six-seat government, that, that six-member party would pull out and that would, you know, there was always right. these risks. Yeah. The irony is there is a security crisis going on in Israel right now, but that's not why the government's under pressure. Right, which is a, which, right, which is a fascinating thing because obviously there have been five terrorist attacks in the last two weeks and it's the first real uh, incidence of, of, of serious terrorism in, in, in a couple of years. And yet the the minister who pulled out, uh, pulled out, as, as, as you were saying to me before, almost for personal social reasons. I mean, larger, this is, this is not meaningless. I'm not saying that it's, you know, people are yelling at her at shul and that's why she, she no, pulls it's out. Close. But, yeah. but um, uh, Bennett, uh, who ran as a, a tribune for, for, the, for the right, uh, is increasingly viewed as somebody who is betraying the interests of the of 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 Israel's religious uh, population, yeah. right? Yeah. No. So, uh, Yamina, which is the Bennett party, is a is a very right wing. Some some members very religious party, religious nationalists, and they had always committed when they were running that they would only serve in a right wing government. And in fact, when Netanyahu was trying to form a government after the last election. Bennett was ready to serve in a, in a right-wing government. He just said that Netanyahu can't cobble together more than 59 seats, which means he can't form a government, which means there is no right-wing right government to form, which is why I'm violating, which he says was not a violation, I'm violating my pledge to not, to not uh, serve or lead a right-wing government. Um, so now, now what's going on in this? So when, when Bennett agreed to do this, Netanyahu and others around him were arguing that you know, Yamina were sellouts, and many members of Yamina, the parliament members of Yamina, as John said, are people who are in Jerusalem or near Jerusalem in very religious Zionist communities, and they literally are going to, like, shop synagogue every Saturday, and there's stories, particularly with this, uh, with this one uh, parliament member, Stillman, who is the one who, who pulled out, where they're getting, like, harangued at services, which is, by the way, a very common experience. I mean, I know <laughs> what it's like to be harangued at synagogue for this, that, and the other thing. So... Um, but but they are they are getting harangued at services and in their communities about what you know for being sellouts, what are being characterized as being sellouts. She is apparently she's inexperienced. She's new in the job. She's she's um, she's the coalition whip. So she's actually not a minister. She's coalition whip. She's sort of more, not a very prominent position, and she's been under pressure for a long time. There's one other member in Yamina that's also pretty vulnerable to defection. The one that everyone's wondered about, whether or not she would defect, is Ayala Chaked, who's the interior minister, who's a real powerful force in Israeli politics. And she's in Yamina, and she's, it's interesting, so someone explained to me, like she's in a different 
like social milieu. She doesn't, even though she's part of this right-wing religious party, she lives in Tel Aviv. She, you know, kind of travels in secular circles and she is not as susceptible to that kind of pressure. And she's also very close to Bennett. I mean, they're close personally. I mean, the relationship, just, just to, this is a fun parenthetical point. She hired Bennett for Bennett's first political job. So she was working for Netanyahu in 2006 when Netanyahu was opposition leader. She was like the office manager in Netanyahu's opposition leadership office. And she, she interviewed Bennett to be the chief of staff. Of course, this is like Bibi's legacy, right? All these people who worked for Bibi have now gone on to have these incredible careers, often in opposition to him, uh, which is maybe not such a great legacy. But, uh, but so she hired Bennett, and they worked together in Bibi's opposition leadership office, and they've been very close friends. So I think she sticks by him. But you know, I wouldn't be surprised if one or two others dropped. Hey, Dan, I have a question. Because you, could you talk about a little uh, what BB has been up to throughout this? Because um, yeah. he's been saying uh, to to prospective uh, defectors, "Come home, <laughs> right? Well, well, welcome home." Yeah. He's apparently offered this one. Uh, you mean a member of the the health ministry? Uh, if in, in a new government, so he's he's basically doing three or four things. Uh, he's got this little legal issue he's got to sort out. So that. Uh, <laughs> takes up a bunch of his time. He's writing uh, a book, he's writing a memoir, which I actually think is going to be excellent because it's the first book he's written uh, in about, uh, since, I 30 guess, years? Yeah, yeah uh, since, Place since, Among the Nations yeah. was that last book he wrote, so he wrote, okay. So he wrote that I think in the 90s. So I think, I think the book will be pretty interesting. And then he's been hanging around the hoop, uh, basically trying to see if he can, if, if Bennett falters, falter, if there's like major stumbling, I don't think he anticipated this, that he could try to cobble together his own government and get 61 seats. He still can't, though. I mean, that's the problem. I mean, he will say this, by the way. He says he's still not there. He's still not at 61 seats. And the challenge for him is, even if everyone who's in the opposition, technically in the opposition now, supports the government falling and supports new elections, six of those 61 members are part of the Arab joint list who don't want to be, quote unquote, complicit in a move that results in Netanyahu being coming back to power. So, so Netany it's not like Netanyahu is sitting there right now at 60-60. He's actually got 54 seats. So he's got to find seven seats to put together a, a new government or force new elections. So I think it's pretty tricky, but that's what he's been doing. That's his, his, his legal stuff, his book stuff, and then his maneuvering to try to see if he can pull together a government. So, you know, we often talk about uh, people, people say when they're talking about American politicians that they like who seem to be stumbling and doing incredibly foolish things and no, 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 no. You know, they're playing 4D chess. You just don't, you can't see it. They're doing, they're making moves. They're so brilliant. And it's, of course, never true, except in Bibi's case. <laughs> I agree with that. Bibi <laughs> plays 4D chess and he has come a cropper because his big 4D chess move in 2014 was precisely this decision to couple the no confidence vote with the new government. That was a way of defending his majority because, he, in other words, there was no point in ever calling a vote of no confidence against Likud once this, once this bill was passed in 2014 because you had to couple it with a fully assembled government at the same time. It was an insurance policy. Now, he would love if that law didn't exist because they could call the vote of no confidence and then the government could collapse and then he could form a government without an election. Right, right. And so, right. so his, his maneuver, which made sense in 2014, 
is a massive obstacle for him now. Right. So the four. So you can lose four D chess, obviously. Yeah. You know, but you unless he's playing, win. unless he's playing five D yeah. chess, okay. yeah. which yeah. which I am actually as a fan of. Netanyahu would. I mean, there's. He's, he's, yeah. he's still got moves here. Yeah. I mean, what, what's fascinating about him, obviously, is that uh, he is a titanic political figure in a democracy. He is the he is the most impressive political player that we've seen in a in a Western democracy. You know, in uh, simply as a political maneuverer in I don't know if in our lifetime, but but close. Like, it is pretty close. And if he can if he can somehow pull off. Uh, the extraction and the collapse of the Bennett government and his own return to power, uh, that will be the capstone achievement of this amazing game that he's able to play. He lives in a country in which nobody else seems to know how to do any of this, and he can. But uh, So in essence, the government doesn't collapse. It means that it just, as was true of the, the previous elections after 2019, the government in power just continues to go on. Um, but that raises one question I wanted to bring up, which is there is some idea abroad uh, that when uh, there was this historic meeting in the Negev between uh, uh, Bennett and Lapid and uh, Tony Blinken and uh, I mean, the, Bahrain, yeah, Morocco. Yeah, the, the Bahraini, the Bahraini, the Bahraini yeah. foreign minister, the UAE yeah, foreign right. minister, right. Yeah, that, um, that Blinken said that the settlers were a great obstacle to peace and that Bennett did not make a public disavowal or an attack on Blinken for doing this and that therefore Blinken deserves some credit or blame for the collapse of the Bennett government. But you, you are skeptical. I'm skeptical because, um, I mean, I, I've heard this one. There's another one I heard that Bennett, there's frustration within Bennett's coalition, the right-wing part of his coalition, that he's been using the term West Bank Recently, he hasn't been, rather than Judea Judean and Samaria, Samaria, ha, this is like, you've gone soft, you know. Um, I, I just think there's a hundred examples of these sorts of slips, if you want to call them that, uh, over these last nine, ten months. Uh, I just, I, it, it's hard to know what actually tripped this government up. The reality is, it's, as I said earlier, it was a really weak government trying to run a government with the 61-seat majority, when you control six seats, you're about the weakest prime minister, and he may, Bennett may turn out to be the shortest you know, serving prime minister in Israel's history. Um, I just think it's very hard to pull off, and so you're always susceptible to these, um, like I'll give you an example. So, to, so the other piece of uh, uh, heat that is being directed at Bennett is that, you know, is Abbas, not Mahmoud Abbas, but Mansour Abbas, who leads the, the Islamist party, uh, the Ram Party, which is in the government, that he's included them in the government, and that's like a sign of, of weakness. So in light of the recent, uh, these terror attacks in Israel over the last couple of weeks, a friend of mine today told me they were driving home from work, and there were these big billboards saying, Abbas, meaning this member of Bennett's government, Abbas equals Hamas. Mm. So like Abbas, this, this guy who who's, has a big role in this government, and is actually a kingmaker in this government, is responsible for, or is indirectly responsible for the violence, and he might as well be Hamas. And so, I mean, when you've cobbled together the kind of government that Bennett has cobbled together, and when the kingmaker for the government was an Arab Muslim party, and your political base is on the right, you're always, I mean, who knows if it's this Blinken thing or it's that yeah. thing. I don't believe it was one thing versus the other. I think it was inevitable that there was going to be this kind of collapse. And as I said earlier, I always thought it was going to be like another Gaza war that would do it. Well, so. 
uh, it's interesting because, uh, of course, our perspective from here has been very focused on the Israeli response to Ukraine and Russia and this uh, sorts of things we've talked about on the podcast and that we've written about on the blog and have articles about in the, in the upcoming issue of commentary, uh, which is the horrible position that Israel finds itself in uh, because it needs to have a working relationship with Russia in order to, in order to keep uh, disaster from occurring in the skies over Syria. So they have to have an open line of communication with Russia, and therefore it's pretty frightening for them to have to come out full bore on, on the side of Ukraine, and then you have all kinds of interesting cross-currents. People uh, as, you know, as nationalistically driven uh, as Natan Sharansky uh, actually came out and said, we have to back Ukraine. Like we, you know, this is this is a moral necessity uh, for us. Um, and Bennett has to walk, you know, Bennett and Lapid and this government has to walk this very, very fine line. But so we're focused on that, and you know, people are saying, why don't they want to give Iron Dome to? to Ukraine, like which Iron Dome, wouldn't, yeah, which wouldn't work. I mean, right. it's not like it's like in a Manila envelope and you send Iron Dome, <laughs> yeah. like yeah. you know, here, open this and yeah. set it up, and yeah. here are some directions. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> it, you know, it works against a certain type of projectile, and yeah. the Russians aren't using it anyway, so right. the whole thing is is ridiculous. But it's just another way of attacking Israel and like saying, oh, Israel is so hypocritical, like it wants to be, and of course because Zelensky. Uh, came out, you know, came down on Israel hard in his speech. That was another occasion for this kind of, um, you know, uh, pressure. But um, can, can I just add one, one yeah. point to this that's often glossed over is that Israel is in, uh, in, 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 in a great deal in this position owing to the United States handing the sort of Syria file to Russia. Uh, in, 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 in the wake of the of the chemical weapons attack in Syria, yeah. right. right? I mean, and that of course is that 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 of course is what haunts Zelensky, in my view, and should haunt Zelensky. Is here you have a president of the United States, who was the vice president in the in the administration, uh, that decided to uh, get itself out of a jam uh, by assigning uh, uh, a certain political role that it that we refused to play. Mm -hmm to the Russians, and, and if we have looked at Russia and seen it as a partner then, and we have Russia playing negotiating games with us in Vienna for the Iran deal, who's to say that the Biden administration won't turn around and screw Ukraine with some kind of fancy-pantsy move on uh, with, with Russia? I mean, it's hard to imagine it now. Now that you know, now that Biden now that Iran deal talks have collapsed. Well, that's another thing we need to talk about, right? Because I don't know that uh, uh, Tony Blinken said today that he does not believe that the Iran deal is going to go forward. That is a huge now. Can I take a victory lap? Because I need to take a victory lap because I am. I have been saying for months. I told you so. <laughs> it's the Randy Travis. It's my favorite Randy Travis song. So I've been saying for months that there was no way that we that the Iran deal could go forward the way we're talking about Russia. It just doesn't make any logical sense. And now the Secretary of State himself says uh, he's very skeptical that it, it could well, happen. it would have gone through if it had become it hadn't become disadvantageous for Russia to pursue this deal. It doesn't need Iranian oil flooding the market at a time when it's trying to flood the market with its oil, trying to drive up prices for its commodities. 
Well, that's a, I mean, that's an important point. And of course, so Russia, right, so Russia plays a role in tanking it. But I'm just saying the logic of where we are as a country on this matter completely militated against the possibility of the role that Russia was supposed to play as, a, some, as some kind of external guarantor of the terms of the Iran deal. I mean, we got the President of the United States calling him a war criminal, saying he has to be removed from power, but it's okay, we're gonna give $100 billion right. to the Iranians, right. and they're gonna, they're gonna keep the Iranians honest. Like, th this is right. not- And they'll send nuclear fuel exactly. from, from Iran to Russia, and Russia will hang on to it in case the deal falls apart, that they can be the guarantor of the deal by hanging on, and they'll get paid for it. Yeah. Uh, Russia will get paid for it by the P5 plus one. It's right. very, very um, schizophrenic So approach. it's, But it was an interesting decision by Blinken to come out and actually make a public statement about how the Iran deal is, is, is dead, it, it, or, or he didn't say it was dead. It was but, a hint. It wasn't a death sentence. I mean, right. I, I think you, you should never overestimate the sanctimonious self-satisfaction and sophistication that our foreign policy elite under Biden feels they have when it comes to all of this. I mean, we're talking about Blinken like he's playing 4D or 5D chess. I'm not so sure that's generally his, his resume. <laughs> See, I, I, I think we don't, we keep saying that there's an opacity to the, uh, to the or uh, reporters, people have been saying this now for a week or so, that it, the Biden administration is very opaque. It doesn't leak. There's very little we know about the internal dynamics of the administration. All we know is that Kamala Harris's office is a, is a, you know, is a, is a crap show. But, but we that's don't, because the, the White House, House is pushing that out every right, day. Right. The White so House, the White that's House part of their messaging right. is, yeah. yeah, right. Right, but, but we, we have very little view inside what's going on between Jake Sullivan and Blinken or who's, who, who is, you know, sort of championing the talks in Vienna in the foreign policy team of, versus who, who isn't. Um, but I'm not surprised that Blinken, the, the Iran deal was a campaign promise uh, that Biden made that he is attempting to fulfill. And it actually makes no practical sense for Blinken. It makes a lot of sense for Rob Malley. This is all Rob Malley wants out of his life is to sell America to Iran, apparently. It's like, you know, he's like been trying to do it for years and he's back at it and he'll try to do it again. Uh, as long as as long as he lives, but it makes no it has made no practical sense for for Blinken, and it there's a there's been a political reason for Biden to pursue it, and there does not appear to be a geopolitical reason for this to go on one second longer. Well, I would also argue that heading into 2022, there's a real this becomes a real political liability for Democrats running for re-election. Right, well, 18 Democrat 18 right. Democratic members of the House and Senate were going. I I, I don't know if they did it because I haven't been on today. But did they they were going to have an event today, in which they were going to say we express enormous concerns about the Iran deal. It's uh, Robert Menendez, uh, I guess leading it, the senator from yeah. New Jersey. But but a whole and bunch Schumer, of people, Val, Dem Val Demings. Yeah. Val Demings was going to be at this press conference as part of her campaign to be governor of Florida. Was to, she was basically gonna come in against the Iran deal. Yeah, and, and so, and, and the, the part that apparently really freaked out a number of Democrats is when there was this discussion as part of the deal, uh, this ultimately collapsed, as part of the deal, the Iranians were arguing that they should be, the IRGC, the Iranian Re Revolutionary Guard Corps, should be delisted right. from the list of foreign terrorist organizations by the US government, which means removes these, these, the IRGC from sanctions. And 
imagine your Chuck Schumer or your Menendez or your Senator Cardin, another senior member of the Foreign Relations Committee, Democrat, having to vote on whether the IRGC should be delisted as a terror organization while the Democrats are literally fighting for their lives heading into November 2022. I just think, so you say it was, a, it was, it was something political for Biden to, to getting it done because he said he would get it done, but I don't think, I think it was a real political nightmare for the Democrats who this are This is an excellent ballot. transition from one collapse in government to the next. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is, it is. Um, but before we get to that, and we're, that was a fantastic transition, uh, but I'm gonna interrupt it because you know it's time, you've been waiting for it, here it comes. It's the X chair. Are you all are you all familiar with the X chair? People I know you probably have never heard of the X chair. So let me introduce you to the dynamic variable lumbar. It is that support for your back. You can't believe it. If I were home right now doing this podcast from my home, I would be luxuriating as I lean back in my X chair with the support that I have always wanted and never had before. What's more? With that LMX temperature regulation technology, if I'm hot, I can get cooled down. If I'm cold, I can get heated up. It is the luxury supercar of office chairs. You know it is. You haven't gotten it yet. It's time for you to check it out. There's a 30-day risk-free trial. 30 days risk-free. If you try it, you're, you're going to keep it. Because once, once you realize how much better your chair could be, you'll never go back. So go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. You can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. That's xchaircommentary.com. Thank you very much. I so prefer these ad reads than when you did the Tommy John's underwear ads. Those were like we've had several complaints from yes. our fans yeah, 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 about yeah, yeah. Tommy, oh, Tommy John's. Right, you, you guys had to fire share. Tommy John's. Right, there's they a didn't pouch. You. There's a pouch. No, no. We banned that word from the podcast, John. We don't that use that it. word when you on the podcast. Talk about the pouch. It has like, a pouch. I can't even. You know. then you press that button, takes you 30 seconds ahead yeah. in the podcast. You, know, you yeah. press it a couple times. You know, the problem for me is, some of you know, I do another podcast called called Glop and and. So we have some of the same, uh, we have some of the same uh, advertisers, and and some the ones that I won't won't do for commentary anymore are still on 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 Glop, and I still have to read some of the most embarrassing copy, but at least we never had kitty poo on this podcast, so and we did on Glop. Anyway, let us turn to exactly the political conundrum that Democrats find themselves in that that uh, Tony Blinken may have uh, uh, extricated them from. Uh, in in announcing that the uh, Iran deal was uh, you know was uh, uh, you know was taken on water, okay. So um, the the numbers are absolutely terrible for the Democrat. Every portent for the Democrats is terrible, and it's so terrible that you would think that there would be more talk about how terrible it was uh, in the mainstream media, and there is, but it comes out dribs and drabs. There's sort of a piece in Politico here. There's a note in Axios there. I want to do the there's piece a, in Politico. The piece in Politico is just too good to pass okay, over. Okay, well, we're going to talk about the, you know, there's a note in Axios there. There's a, there's a piece about a focus group that appears in the Washington Post one day. Nobody follows it up, but, you know, 
let a psychotic congresswoman from Georgia burp, and there's you know five <laughs> days worth of coverage. So, uh, so let's talk about this. And Dan Dan has a has a has a window into this. But Noah, yeah. So we got four major issues in the United States, all of which the Democrats are in terrible, terrible positions on, like. Uh, that's electoral why this political piece was, was particularly revealing, not because it was just another focus group. We're awash in anecdotes about how out of touch Yeah, so Democrats this piece was, was a report on a focus group a conducted focus group. by Democrats, or a series of focus groups conducted by Democrats. I think it was, I think it was a Democratic organized focus yeah. group. Anyway, oh, yeah. the, the voters were, uh, the respondents were asked about a series of issues, and it was the tone of this piece that was so jarring because it was sneering and contemptuous towards Democratic politicians who have convinced, and, and the, the talking heads in the press who cater to democratic interests who have convinced themselves, in the words of this political piece, that all the war, all America needs to understand that this economy is great is for the media to keep talking about how the economy is great. Why, and then this political piece is that they have convinced themselves of a fiction, this narr narrative that they've um, married to in their heads, and it doesn't match voters' experience. And these are democratic voters whose issues were crime, urban crime, and inflation and the economy and the reduced purchasing power. And this is everywhere in all of our lives are affected by this. You can't ignore it. It's impossible to ignore it unless you self-select and cloister yourself to such a degree. And we've seen this in polls for quite some time. In February, there's a Quinnipiac poll that is really illustrative of this issue. Top three issues for you. Among Republicans, it was inflation and the economy, um, immigration, and um, what was the third? Crime. Crime, Crime. thank you. Immigration. Uh, uh, inflation and crime. For independents, much the same. A little bit less intense, but the same. Inflation, uh, the economy, uh, crime, and immigration. And for Democrats, their top three issues were climate change, <laughs> election laws, and the COVID pandemic, which ranks dead last in a Pew Research Center poll of 13 different issues. Dead last. It's not experienced by anybody except Democrats anymore. Finger on the pulse of the nation, but this is what they're talking to each other about. And which is why they seem completely unprepared for the prospect of collapse. They talk about it as though it's coming. They know it's coming. It's an earthbound asteroid. But I don't think they, they can see anything but, to do with it. But Noah, we've disappointed them. Don't you understand? It's really not their fault. We're just disappointing them by not embracing the, the alarmist notion of, uh, particularly about climate change. If any of you have young kids who've gone through any sort of educational, public educational system, you know this. They come home, you know, drawing. too, by the way. Yeah, with, with the drawing of the cow with the big Ghostbusters slash through it. It's like, you know, don't eat meat. It's killing us all. The water's right. I mean, the, there is a narrative here that, that's extreme, but it's, but it's become normalized, in, in, I think, in, in in certain circles, particularly among Democrats. It's the inflation and crime stuff that's going to get them, though, because that's something where you can't blame the victim. Literally, they're blaming they're the victim. They're not even right trying. Now. It's immigration that I find most shocking because it shows up in every poll as a top issue, not just for Republicans and independents, but everybody. Republican candidates are fielding ad after ad, 30-second spots only on immigration, and you can't, you haven't heard a word of it in mainstream press. It just it's, it's not as though they're trying to refute a narrative. They're not even acknowledging the narrative exists. Well, it was about a year ago when, when there were, I think, when there were... Um, uh, all these migrants are massed uh, under that bridge, and it, it, it got some attention. And then the White House essentially said to the press, "All right, leave us alone on this. We're going to take care of it. Then get back. We'll get back to you when we when we finish taking care of it." And the press kind of listened. They 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 they, they well, had Kamala Harris was given the was given the the job, and you know when you give Kamala a job, that job is going to get done. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's face it. I, that's it. That's it. Pants. You know, like I you know I I I hope they put her on 
every job because I think you know the country is just going to be. But but this this, this this does go a little bit to the the schizophrenic nature of the messaging because Noah's right. They're not talking about immigration except to lift this Title Forty Two, which we we've discussed this restriction that was using another COVID. shot in the foot. Right. Who so is like COVID place? is done in some places but not in others. Right. So student loans, which we talked about on the podcast this morning, COVID is causing people not to pay their loans back, but the economy's great and we should let everyone over the border because COVID's done and stop saying that the economy's bad because COVID is over and you can wear your mask, but you don't have to wear your masks. And it's confusing. There isn't actually a clear message. And the commonality among all this is it's all coming down from the White House. The White House is, is constantly undermining, not allowing them to run local, not allowing them to even run away from the White House where they need to, which they really don't have to for Democrats. But they certainly do when it comes to just another issue coming down the pike, like masking, like getting rid of Title 42, which no one wanted and no one's asking for, student loans for no reason. They just give them more stuff to defend on the trail. Just leave us alone. So Dan, uh, you're somebody who who uh, uh, talks a lot to, uh, you know, uh, players. Uh, just talk in, a lot. Just leave it at just talk a lot. No, but, but you listen, <laughs> yes, Dan. I you're listen a listener. Right. You're a good listener. Yeah. You listen. A lot of people tell you a lot of interesting things. So uh, we've been told... Uh, we had a lot of focus on you know the redistrict how redistricting didn't go the Republicans' way and Democrats have saved themselves some trouble uh, in, in the redistricting process, getting some seats back. And we've been told that you know really the the field of seats that Republicans might be able to get in the House is narrower than people think because of the big sort and 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 where people are and 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 all of that. And and actually in the Senate, you know. There's a, there's a lot of close stuff, but you see incumbents are going to pull it. They're doing some good fundraising and all this. And I think while this kind of, this kind of uh, uh, bright-eyed conversation among, among Democrats and media people uh, is it, making them very, uh, is calming them down to some degree, um, quietly, from what I heard, like the, the National Republican Campaign Committee is slowly but methodically expanding the number of seats they think they can contest, right? I think they're up somewhere around 80 possible seats that are that they consider in play, that they will devote resources to. And that's no, that's no joke, right? Because if you say a seat is in play, you want to commit something to it, and that's money, that's a zero-sum game. That's money you spend it there, you won't spend it somewhere else. You expand the field because things are going your way and because you have a lot of money and because you actually think you have a real shot there. And then we have to talk about the Senate also. Well, let's, so let's, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying in the House. Let's talk about the Senate. So the Senate, it's the same arguments made that the path is too narrow for Republicans to win the majority. Now, for Republicans to win the majority, they have to defend two of the Republican seats that are open, which are Pennsylvania and North Carolina, which I think, let's assume they will. And then they have two incumbents that could have tough races. Florida and uh, Marco Rubio and Ron Johnson, Wisconsin. So for a variety of reasons, I think they win both of those two. Florida, I think Rubio will run away with it with DeSantis at the top of the ticket. Wisconsin could be tough, but the Democrats are about to nominate someone truly crazy. So that, and that's saying something. So, um, so I think even Johnson will be okay. So then where are the pickups? Well, there's Adam Laxalt, who's gonna be the Republican nominee in Nevada, and I, he's a terrific candidate, and we should win that, uh, win that race. And then there's Herschel Walker, potentially, in Georgia, which that, could, that race could get complicated, but let's assume he, he picks that up, he wins that. So if Laxalt or Walker win, and we defend those four seats I said earlier, Republicans win the majority. It's a narrow James majority. Jordan. What's that? What about New Hampshire? Okay so, then, okay, so that's a narrow majority. So now, let's start saying, could we get a real majority? 
could Republicans get a real majority? So that's Shaheen in New Hampshire. So Hassan. Uh, sorry, Hassan. Hassan, Hassan right, right. Yeah. Shaheen's the other, right, the yeah. other Democrat. Yeah. There, right. Uh, so she, so Republicans were disappointed. McConnell was disappointed when Governor Sununu didn't run. But the state Senate president is apparently a pretty interesting guy, and he's a pretty good candidate, and he's not polarizing, and he's fundraising. So there's a shot at winning that race. But my only point is there's a few of these that no one's really paying attention to that could break. And if it's a real wave election, which I think it will be. All the signs are, you know, Biden has record low approval ratings. 70% of the country thinks they're on the wrong track. I, by the way, it's amusing to me when I'm seeing, like, the, the advice that the White House is getting from Obama and Hillary Clinton, where, like, Obama did this visit to the White House, and he was like, you just need to tell your story. You know, your story's great. If you just tell your story, win. 70% of the country thinks... We're on the wrong track. Like, let's yeah, yeah, yeah. keep Change talking about that yeah. story. Let's Can't really going. trust a Biden story anyway. Yeah, can that's you? true. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, but I think there are, if there's a real wave election, I think you will see more than just New Hampshire opening up. I think you could see, like, there are sleepers. It's funny that you didn't mention Arizona, because right. I think all of us generally believe that the Arizona Republican Party isn't capable of competing in Arizona anymore. Right. Well, if but, I mean, I, I do worry about who who we potentially nominate there, and if I mean, we should. I mean, we should Ducey, win there. Hogan, and um, New Hampshire, and Sununu all bowed out for right. a reason. Right. No, no, it's, absolutely. And it's not because of the environment. It's because nobody wants to go to the Senate anymore. Yeah. Well, there's that, but there's also, yeah, they also... And Ducey didn't want to fight with Trump, and it was a yeah, right. complicated... Uh, yeah. Just just spending... He, Ducey didn't want to be Brian Kemp right. in Georgia. So Ducey's the governor of Arizona. Brian he, was a, he, he was the candidate that everybody wanted to run right. in, for, uh, as a Republican in Arizona, and he said he's not going to do it. And the, uh, I guess the question is whether, and this is, this is where it gets interesting, whether the Arizona party will nominate a lunatic, like a person that very, very easily caricatured or, or made fun of or trashed, and whatever you may make of Mark Kelly, uh, you know, he's... He's an astronaut, you know. I mean, yeah, he's not—he's not, he's not an unserious person. Yeah, I mean, he's—you know—he—he's uh, not the most charismatic person who ever yeah. lived, but you know, and 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 he is tacking way to the center. Mm -hmm. He is following—he is following cinema's lead like crazy. Last fourth and and on immigration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he is lead, He is attacking the administration for the lifting of this. Um, Didn't he just vote against some? Come out against some nominee of the, the labor labor yeah. department yeah. Uh, yeah, right. uh, head of uh, yeah. uh, hours and wages. Yeah. Yeah. So he is he is localizing his race, right? Yeah. I mean, in that sense, he is he is saying, look, I'm going to do what I can to win this race, and that means making myself palatable to independents in Arizona to the extent possible, with the possible with the assumption that Republicans are going to nominate somebody unpalatable. But in a wave, and, a, and I'm sorry, this is the thing about waves. Unpalatable people win in waves. Right. Because waves have two components, right? You have an incredibly energized population of Republicans and Republican-leaning voters, and you have a depressed population of Democratic voters, and the two you know, end up creating the conditions nationally for everything that's close just tilts in one direction, right? But, that's but, but, and that's why some of these states that, again, that no one's paying attention to. So take Washington State, right? Patty Murray, totally entrenched Democrat. She's running for re-election. Now, she, they're, they're, she should have a cakewalk through re-election. So what's happened, you know, since Patty Murray last ran for re-election? Well, like Seattle, I don't know if you all have followed what's happened in <laughs> Seattle, but it's like... I don't even know what to yeah. do. You know, open air refugee camps in the downtown. Escape, escape from Seattle. Escape you know, from escape Seattle, from right? New York. Yeah. So, 
So then last year, there was an election at the local level, King County, which is the county in Seattle, around Seattle, where the most senior countywide official, state was a county prosecutor, was up for re-election. And a Republican won the King County prosecutor's position. It's the first time in something like 40 years that a Republican has won in Seattle in a countywide position. So then you, so that's sort of interesting. And then there's this woman, Smiley, who's decided, who's a healthcare practitioner, who's a charismatic uh, woman who leads a family in Seattle, and she just got freaked out about what was happening in downtown Seattle, and she says, you know what? I'm running against Patty Murray. And everyone says, oh no, Patty Murray. She's on, you know, you're a neophyte. You don't, you don't, you're, you, you don't, you can't beat Patty Murray. And she's quietly building a campaign, quietly raising real funds. Do I think Patty Murray is beatable right now? It's debatable. Do I think we could wake up in August or September and suddenly a lot of these races are starting to be five-point races? We're meeting like Smiley's five points behind Murray. In an environment like this, where Republican turnout is going to be through the roof, if you're a Democrat, entrenched Democrat, running for re-election, you want to be going into Election Day like seven to ten points ahead. You cannot be going into Election Day zero, you know, two to five points ahead because if turnout is massive and it's a big wave, voters are going to turn out from corners that no one was paying attention to and they're probably not voting for you, the entrenched Democrat. Which is why I wouldn't be surprised if McConnell and the National Republican Senatorial Committee and the Republican Super PACs, you start seeing in like August and September, they start spending money in places like uh, Washington State, in Vermont for Pat Leahy's seat, where an interesting candidate has just, uh, just decided to get in the race to run for Leahy's seat. So it, you know, yes, it is a very, on the one hand, it's a very narrow path to Republicans winning the majority. On the other hand, I think it's entirely possible that we wake up in November after Election Day and Republicans have like 53 or 54, 55 seats in the Senate. Right. So, so the question is, what is it that Republicans can do to screw this up? That, that, <laughs> well, that, that's ultimately always a party question, right? Because we're, we're, we're watching that we, we have seen Democrats do it in real time in 2020. I'm not talking about the top of the ticket. I mean, we heard about that phone call after the 2020 election, the Abigail Spanberger, the Congresswoman from Virginia, who screamed on the phone about you people who did defund the police, you lost South Florida for us. You've lost, you know, we lost 13 seats in the House. That's all you. You did it, and you did it with your eyes open, and we could have told you, and you didn't listen to us, right? So we've seen in real time Democrats, you know, take things that are winnable and make them losable because of their ideological... Can I take that and go back to the focus group for a second? Yes. This is a really fascinating focus group. Uh, in part because one of the things that they mentioned, that you, Democrats think they've internalized all the lessons from 2020, right? Where no one says defund the police anymore, even though almost all of them are on record to that extent. And they're like, we, we got it. We heard from you. No more defund the police, right? We're actually funding. The, we're providing more local funding to police, right? In this focus group, the Democratic voters who were asked about this issue talked about crime as a problem of policing and prosecution, because it's the prosecutors who are, uh, and sentencing reforms, the prosecutors who are failing to charge, failing to prosecute prosecutable crimes, and sentencing reforms at the legislative level have made it so that, and bail reforms have made it so that repeat offenders, recidivists, can get on the street, commit crimes again, go back to jail, get out, commit crimes again, and they experience this. This is their daily lived experience. It has nothing to do with defund the police, it has everything to do with ideology that's affected prosecutions and the lack thereof. Look, I think that's a very important point. It's more important to point out that it doesn't matter whether you live in a place where there is a progressive prosecutor 
who is doing this, as, 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 as we all as we all do, or most of us do. Like, you know, uh, the three of us live in Manhattan where Alvin Bragg is, had, you know, made as a public pronouncement that he wasn't going to prosecute misdemeanors, right? I mean, that was his, like, that was his blanket rule. But because of social media and the way news travels, this has become a nationalized issue. So it's like, if, if, there's, if there's bail reform in New York, it makes you feel unsafe in Arizona because... Crime is not isolatable. Like people feel less secure, and they know that these things have ancillary rollover, uh, secondary effects elsewhere. There's, but there's also to, to, to Noah's point about the sentencing in particular. I think that's what sparked so much backlash or discussion uh, on the Katanji Brown Jackson nomination. Right, her sentencing decisions as a judge became a big cultural flashpoint, not because Republicans are being mean to our nominee, but because there were some serious questions that people wanted to raise about the leniency of some of her sentences, given uh, given what we know about recidivism. And, and the, and the, and the, the whore, yes, exactly. Project. So it became this way to try to have a discussion that, as you said, Democrats do not want to talk about this except to say, we learned our lesson about defund the police, and now we just want better police, police reform, fund policing, violence interrupters. That's not answering the fear. And it's true that the DNC, head of the DNC, went on, went on the news and was like, Republicans want fear and fascism you know, and fraud. That's what they stand for. But fear is real. It's a very motivating force for voters, and they're going to take it to the ballot box soon, and I think Democrats will learn that lesson again. Yeah, I think, by the way, it's not just that if you're in Arizona and there's um, rising crime in New York, you're, you sort of get it through uh, continental osmosis. I think if you're in Arizona, you're probably, there's probably a, a crime, crime rise in Phoenix. I mean, because it is, right. it is really quite yeah. widespread. Yeah, no, sure. Yeah. Right, but I'm saying, I'm saying that, the, that the two, and I think that's why Noah's point about the prosecutors is so important, that the that the two are now combined, so that you can have a crime rise, but your your uh, criminal justice system where you're living locally has not surrendered yet to this uh, intellectual ideological wave. But it could could any minute, it could any time. The entire Democratic Party seems to be committed to it, or at least not in, in not in not opposing it, or 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 supporting the progressive prosecutors who are now coming under attack rather than running away from them. I mean... Uh, the Chisa Boudin recall will be one to watch this summer to see as a right. harbinger. But, you know, I'm, I'm constantly harking back to the 1970s and the parallels to the present. But this is a real... Democrats being soft on crime was the kryptonite that destroyed... People don't... people don't remember, I mean, a lot of people in this room, because you're old like me, you remember, but you know, people don't remember how central an issue crime was, and they don't remember that the, the argument was that politicians were soft on crime, that politicians and the people that they installed as judges and as prosecutors and whatever, that they were soft on crime. And it was almost inarguable, because they were soft on crime. <laughs> and right now, um, it just, it feels so similar. It feels weirdly similar, and it also feels similar in the sense that it was not a major issue in the press until, but it was a cultural issue, right? It was like, the press didn't do it, but Death Wish was made. You know, the press didn't do it, but art jokes on sitcoms in the 1970s. And inflation, by the way, 
is worth so, watching in the same way. Mm -hmm. Sitcoms, Norman Lear, very progressive leftist producer of sitcoms in the 1970s, but if you watch the sitcoms in the 1970s, half the jokes were about how expensive food was at the supermarket or how, how expensive it was to fill up your gas tank or something like that. That was, a, that was a real thing. That was a populist message and Democrats had nothing to say about it and it turned out Republicans at the time did and Reagan unified this message, right, about weakness at home and weakness abroad and it was a huge thing. Now we're not having a national election in 2022 in that sense because there's not going to be a president on the ballot. Um, but it is bizarre because the, the Democratic, at least in the 70s, the Democratic Party was split. The Democratic Party was a party, there was an urban party, and urban Democrats were right wing. They weren't left wing then. They were right wingers. They were white working class people who were being threatened in their homes and on their streets and stuff like that. And you had politicians like Ed Koch, who was a local New York City congressman who moved to the right to win and won the mayoralty of New York, running as somebody who said, enough of this already, like it came out of nowhere. And you have very few Democrats doing that yet. But I don't think we're not going to see it. So then how do Republicans screw it up? Yeah, you're, I was just going to say, we're avoiding your question. Tough question. Yeah. <laughs> well, they screw it up by being crazy, right? That's the obvious answer, right? They screw it up by being crazy and, and, and nominating. I mean, look, I'm not, I, I, commentary is a 501c3 nonprofit. I don't endorse candidates. We don't endorse candidates. We're not aligned with any party. But they sell the X chair. But we say, yes, and that is also very, very, very non-aligned. Yes. It's a very much a non-aligned product. But, um, but you know, it's like, okay, so you've got Dave McCormick in, in Pennsylvania or Dr. Oz, right? I mean, Dave McCormick is a pretty good candidate, and Dr. Oz is a lunatic, even though he's famous. So easy to run against Dr. Oz, particularly going to be easy for this guy, uh, Fetterman, to yep. run against Dr. Oz, harder to run against Dave McCormick. Uh, so who, who are Pennsylvania Republicans going to go for? What are you going to do in Arizona? I don't know if there's like a serious, really good candidate in Arizona, but there's obviously a lunatic in Arizona. Um, and, and like that. So you could have that, right? You could have the party going lunatic. And then there is this one X, X, X issue. Well, before we get yeah. to your X issue, I'll just say two. So I agree with you. The two buffers against that happening are one. In, at least in the Senate, McConnell and some of his organs who, that basically sat out in 2010 of the primaries, which is why you had some of these right. real characters winning nominations that were Senate seats we should have won, that Republicans should have won, the Republicans lost, and you know the national Republican infrastructure stayed out of it, and they're no longer staying out of it. So it's like well known, for instance, in Missouri, a Senate seat that Republicans should have no problem winning. If Eric Reitens, the former governor of Missouri, is the nominee, suddenly that seat becomes comes into play. Claire McCaskill had won a Senate seat in Missouri by actually her and Harry Reid intervening and in getting uh, Todd, Aiken. Todd Aiken uh, nominated. So, so McConnell and his organs are his his various entities are getting involved already to try to prevent Greitens from winning the nomination. So they're getting involved with primaries. So that's the good news. The second piece of good news is energy is so high. Interest among Republicans is so high because. A, people are so frustrated, and people are so uh, against Biden. Voters are so against Biden. And and three, they feel like Republicans are going to win the majority, so they can, like, taste it, so they want to, like, make it happen. In that kind of environment, 
you get Republican voters turning out who may have sat out the last two or three elections. In primaries, you mean. In primaries, yeah. right. Like a lot of suburban Republicans who like thought the party went kind of crazy the last few years, but now that part of the party's kind of- Just say wine moms. Just say wine moms. Okay. <laughs> and they're, and they're, 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 the, the crazies are not running the show anymore, and there are some good candidates running, and I'm going to turn out to go vote for that good candidate. And when you get that kind of massive turnout, it's not just the base that's showing up. And the base that's showing up in an environment where no one else shows up you can nominate some pretty nutty candidates. But a world in which the base is showing up and everyone else is showing up, you can get But more. do we even know what the Republican base looks like anymore? Like, for example, you're, you saw, talked about wine moms, right? Like, it's a, it's a funny joke. It's true. But wine moms are gone. They're all gone. They used to be a Republican bread and butter. Now they're 23 points pro-democratic. The Republican base is not what it looked like 10 years ago. And I don't even know if we know what the Republican base vote looks like anymore. Well, so the wine moms may say they're Democrats. That doesn't mean that they could be the Reagan Democrats of 22 in the general election, right? In other words, they're now aligned with the Democrats. College degrees, when they have a, when they have a choice to make in November, if they have a non-nut to go for, they they will they. It is likely that they will they will flow back. I mean, well, that, they could also is, be part of the parents angry parents movement. I mean, right. that, they're very likely. Right, right. That, that's, that's a, a good point. Glenn yeah, Youngkin. right. And what's interesting about Glenn Youngkin is is I mean, he was is not only a, a very capable candidate, but the Democrats' only play against him was to try to turn him into something that he wasn't. Fascist in a fleece fest. I right. Think, was yeah. The yeah. That didn't and he just responded to that by saying, "No, I'm Glenn Youngkin. Yeah. And let me tell you about who I am, and you know my my background and my family and the kind of Virginia I want to lead. And and like they were throwing everything at him. He's Donald Trump. He's this. He's that. They tried everything, and he just ran as. Let me tell you. I'm and I think we are. There's the potential in a lot of these states to nominate candidates who can run a, a Yunkin play. Right. So I want to once again thank everybody here for coming, joining us. I hope you have heard the enthusiasm of the audience. So when we come at you again and come closer to where you are geographically for another live podcast some point later in the year, you will see that it would be worth your while. But can I ask one question us? before? Please. Because I, you guys rail against the COVID, you know, the COVID cops, yeah. like yeah. all the time on this podcast, almost daily. Mm -hmm. I come to a commentary event in South yeah. Florida and I have to show my Vax card to get into the commentary <laughs> event. I mean, this is not exactly truth in advertising. You guys, you guys talk a big game, but is this your mandate? Is this the pot horse? No. No, okay, all right, all right. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. I'm like, what? No. You want my we Vax card? <laughs> and I have to double mask? It's gonna be hard to talk in the microphone with like, we're at a venue, and the venue had rules. And all right, we, all right, I'll let it go. And I was like not happy, but I, you know, there are times for a broigus, and there are times not for a broigus, and this was a time not for a broigus because I wanted people to hear you, Dan. I wanted them to hear, and, and you listen, and then you also hear, and that's very important. And thank you all for coming. Thank you all for being here to listen to us. So for Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. Yeah.